So I think we, we had a food chain last week. I wonder if anyone who wants to draw could just draw uh, a community. So with sort of all the different people in the community gathered together, maybe for like a photo or something. And I'd love you, please, to see if you can draw lots of different people who you can immediately see what they do in the community by what they're wearing. There you go. So think Trumpington, that kind of thing. Okay, so that, that, that's the challenge. That probably doesn't help most of our drawers, I'm afraid. I don't think they've seen Trumpington. That's a neglect on my part, obviously. Is meaning in our head or out there? We don't know the answer to that at the moment as a society. Since Nietzsche, if you want to know, the answer has really been in our head. And the great problem we're wrestling with is what happens if the meaning in my head is different from the meaning in your head? Because then we've got no common ground. We can't really exist together as a society. I'm going to go straight into this passage and say that those first two verses that Pippi read, Jesus reveals true hierarchy. Jesus reveals true hierarchy. Because by this point in the service, we haven't talked enough about stuff we hate as modern people. Let's just talk about another really uncontroversial thing. Hierarchy. All you need to do is put pate on the front of that word, and we have one of the big bads of the previous 20 or 30 centuries, don't we? Perhaps that was the idea whizzing around your head. Patriarchy. Why is that happening in church? I thought we moved on from that. But this hierarchy and the patriarchy keeps coming back. And each time it's more sinister and apparently abusive than the last time we banished it from our thinking. One of the great fears in our society at the moment is that someone is pulling the strings beyond our apparently bottom-up elected governments. You struggle to find anyone who doesn't have some suspicion about that at the moment, in one direction or another. One of the arguments that has sometimes been made against our democratic system, it's a pretty pessimistic argument, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it, but the idea is power surely can't really be given to the people. It just doesn't work that way. All that happens is you end up with someone who looks like they're in charge and the real power melts into the shadows, less accountable, and more dominant than before. Hierarchy stubbornly exists, but our age hates it. The Corinthian Christians were surrounded by a particularly brutal form of hierarchy in the worship of pagan gods and the real might of the Roman Empire. We're surrounded by banks ousting governments as a military coup not long ago in another country. The UN or the World Health Organization are proposing treaties that are highly controversial in the countries that they're supposed to be governing, that end up trampling over the wills of local governments because the need globally is so great. Or closer to home, all of us have had a terrible boss or have received a letter from a clueless council or have gone 
cross swords with a ruthless registrar. That's the last one, I promise. <laughs> okay. That's why we hate hierarchies. The people on the top dump on the people lower down. And so it carries on until we reach the literally downtrodden at the bottom. But the question we're asked to consider right at the head of this passage that certainly got our hackles up is what if God is both at the top and the bottom of an eternal hierarchy? End of verse three. The head of Christ, the head of Christ is God. Paul's already said, chapter eight, verse six in this letter, there's only one God, the Father, who created everything and we live for him. And there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything and through whom we've been given life. That eternal relationship between the Father and the Son in the unity of the Holy Spirit is never far from Paul's thinking throughout this letter. That is the heart of reality for the world of the Bible. Jesus has a head. Jesus has someone in authority over him. Someone from whom he gains his life and to whom he is obedient. And you notice in that verse, I'm sure we'll get to it, I promise, the the bit that we're finding difficult. He puts the top of the hierarchy at the end. And I think that's deliberate. But he he doesn't put the bottom at the beginning either. Let's read it. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. We have the bit that we find impossible, sandwiched between two bits that we accept without question, really, as Christians, or else barely think about. He derives the one in the centre from the two that seem reasonable to us. Jesus reveals something that every culture has failed to live up to and struggled with in different ways. But even in all those failures, there are those who have sought to inhabit this pattern, to submit to it, to understand it as far as they could, to give themselves humbly over to it. And I want to argue this morning that those who do that fare better than we seem to be at the moment. The vision Paul gives us here is that there is an order a pattern to reality that reaches all the way up into the life of God himself. And that a crucial dynamic within that pattern is between men and women. There is something intrinsic to being created as gendered humans. We don't need to define what that means for ourselves in a sometimes aggressive, always confusing dance of competing agendas, setbacks, victories. When we come into Jesus' church, there's a pattern for us to learn together that he models himself. And something we probably didn't notice because of that verse three is that this pattern goes two ways. So the father is the head of Christ, who is the head of man, who is the head of woman. So far, so outrageous. But going back along the line, 
looking at particularly verse 7. Woman is the glory of man and man is the glory of God, meaning there in verse 7, Christ. And the implication is from elsewhere in the letter and the New Testament, Christ is the image and glory of God, his father. So you've got head, 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 glory, 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 glory. We hate hierarchies because we've only seen the head bit and often at its very worst. Our workplaces degenerate into this. Our church is seeing this pattern at its worst at the moment. The majority of our bishops on all sides of the current debates, people believe this is true, are disregarding their own processes and attempting to trample over the churches under them with a kind of manoeuvring and slippery deceitfulness. We've seen marriages, families, town councils, governments, empires that abuse this notion of head of. No wonder we viscerally react against the apparent Bible sanctioning of one of the most ancient and persistent abuses of headship in all of human history, the oppression and marginalising of women by men. The Bible does not deny that that has happened. But at this point, once we acknowledge that, together we have to be bold and humble and open and courageous all at once. Because the travesty of hierarchy that we're familiar with doesn't remove it. It's still present, whatever we do. So could we imagine that there might be a beauty to this pattern that Jesus can reveal to us if we come to him humbly? No earthly hierarchy, except, and I say this cautiously, sometimes... Parts of the church or nations that have fully embraced what church life means. Really, we, we've never seen it lived out properly. We've particularly never seen that glory part of the chain going upwards lived out. If those below are the glory of those above, truly, there is no possibility of that abuse and domination with which we're so familiar, coming from above. The point of a true hierarchy, which takes its pattern from the Holy Trinity, who we confess in our creed, are one. There are ways you can look at the Trinity that don't see any difference at all, that just see them cooperating so completely that they're one. And yet when you look in a different way, there is this pattern of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in relationship of mutual submission. Well, when we take our pattern from there, there's no room for usurping from beneath or domination from above. There is literally a glorious continual giving of each to the other, preserving distinction, but eternally united. And if we ever doubt that, the way we can know for sure when examples from our history are so scarce is looking at how Jesus glorifies his father as the father gives life to Jesus, how Jesus obeys his father 
and the Father gives him commands that liberate. And most of all, as we do every year in Holy Week, we meditate on how Jesus glorifies the Father on the cross as the Father vindicates him for all eternity through the resurrection and the ascension. Our problems with hierarchy, even this one that we're looking at today, can begin to be healed if we meditate on our triune God. Now, I am not thinking that I will persuade anyone of anything on this subject this morning. That's absolutely fine. Prayerfully, that the one goal really I have this morning is that we get a tiny glimpse of the possibility of a hierarchy that frees us to be more ourselves. That we can inhabit a role, a pattern that stretches across the whole of humanity and the whole of the universe that removes that internal or external strife often caused by the gender into which we're born. So Jesus reveals a true hierarchy. But now the bit perhaps we've all been dreading. Verse 4 to 16. Jesus gives us patterns to grow into in church. Jesus gives us patterns to grow into in church. So far, this head and glory language are are mostly vague metaphors. Even the most painstaking attempts to handle the verses so far have been rejected by modern Western Christians, almost wholesale. But the vast majority of the church down the ages and across the world have not only accepted the symbols, they've enacted them in what they wear and what hairstyle they have. Now, if we weren't uncomfortable already, this is where it goes off the scale, right? (laughs) And, And that's why I wanted us to experience something of that in Pippi coming to read as she did. There are churches which have actually said Pippi shouldn't have read in church as a woman, even with a covering. We've got to wrestle with that if we want to be united with the church across the world. Pippi and I have worshipped alongside Orthodox Christians locally, where all the women present have worn a simple head covering like the one Pippi wore this morning. That simple obedience to these verses has been and still is by far the most common response when the global and ancient church are taken into consideration. It wasn't long ago that women in this church building would have worn a hat as they came in and men would have taken theirs off. The literal covering of a woman's head has been understood as the best way in church worship to reflect this higher pattern Jesus reveals of a hierarchy between his father and him, between him and man, and between man and woman. So what is that discomfort we all feel? And believe me, I feel it too. I I have tended in my life to denigrate the masculine in myself because I see how horrible it can be. And this has been a challenge to me to consider what's going on in me when I feel like that. Because for us, the symbol is almost worse than what we fear it symbolises. Sadly, I imagine all of us have encountered actual misogyny at work, 
in our culture, online, on the street when someone makes a thoughtless or a rude comment, a comedian making a sexist joke. When we encounter that, we often brush it off more easily than seeing a woman in our church, verse 10, wear a covering on her head to show she is under authority. None of the symbols of misogyny and sexism in themselves have power to belittle or marginalise women. If all we respond to as humans is rational argument, these things should have no power at all. But we know that the symbols matter. We know it matters if there's a callous slogan that pops up on Facebook. It affects our day and it affects all the people who read it. We know that clothing matters. It's not arbitrary what people wear. The glass ceiling is powerful because it can't be seen. Symbols are more powerful than things in themselves. And when we see a covering worn because of someone's gender, we feel the power of symbols. We know they mean something. Symbols shape our reality. The symbols by which we're surrounded create our sense of what is inappropriate and appropriate. What attitudes we should adopt, what expectations we should have, what counts as polite or rude. These things actually matter more in our day-to-day lives than laws or employment rights. Though those, of course, do matter because they shape our entire experience rather than just a small, carefully defined sliver. So can we get anywhere with this symbol before we all chuck our Bibles out the window or burn them? I hope no one's planning to do that, but maybe that's the sense that we feel. So let's just work through this. Uh, It's 18 minutes. I'm I'm determined not to, yeah, I've got quite a lot on this that I'm not going to be able to say. So please ask me if there's stuff, if I haven't addressed a question. I have thought about all of it, believe me. And, And yeah. Here we go. Uh, the, the praying or prophesying thing, uh, it, it's called worshipping more than once in verse 7, so example. And that's pretty good. So it, it kind of means in church. So what we're doing now, this morning. The vision of church life is that for one brief moment in the week, we together bring into physical reality the spiritual unseen pattern of eternal worship of the Trinity in heaven. That's why you talk about angels, verse 10. And if you've been like, what? You know, because of the angels? What? That's why, because we're talking about showing on earth what happens in heaven. As far as possible, the goal when we meet in church is to align with things as Jesus created them at first and will recreate them when he comes to judge. I hope all of you have in your mind, if you've thought about these questions at all, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. In Christ, there is no male and female. That, there's some other things he says, but that's the big thing. I would say the pattern that the world and the church has largely adopted to the exclusion of basically everything else in the Bible is this pattern. That, that is the only word the Bible can truthfully say about gender in our culture at the moment. And therefore, this passage is basically 
kind of, we don't have to pay attention to it because, because of that. Like, that, that's how people reconcile this. But, but I'd love us, as we, as we go through the symbol, to see how actually this passage can complement that insight that in Christ there is no male or female, rather than going against it. The way we express our shared identity as men and women, sons of God, that's deliberate, that men and women are sons of God, fully inheriting all the privileges of reigning with Jesus in heaven. In fact, Jesus specifically says in his debate with the Sadducees, to be a son of God means being equal to the angels in heavenly responsibility with our gender differences. The way we live for that reality that we're being called to as Christians is not to completely erase the differences between us as men and women. The Bible encourages us to fully express them deliberately. There is an apparent paradox that the Bible holds together. The way we most proclaim our equal future as men and women is by leaning in to our difference as men and women. And even more mysteriously, this is best expressed of all the options we might try by what's happening on our heads. That's what it, that's what it says. It's not only to do with covering with a bit of clothing. It, it's to do with hairstyle and the physical arrangement of our bodies with the heads up here and the rest of us down here. The way we engage with each other face to face, when we look in each other's eyes, the way our heads are kind of where it feels like we are. You know, you, you feel like the you is, is up here, don't you? Um, that, that, that's deliberate. And the Bible looks at that and says, OK, well, here's what this means. Here's something perhaps we couldn't possibly have predicted. The reason given for covering women's heads in worship is because women are too glorious. Women don't point to anything else. They are the pinnacle of human glory. Men can legitimately point to women as the ultimate expression of the role of humanity as a whole in the eternal life of the Trinity. Adam saw the first woman and said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, Verse 9, he gave all his attention to her. That's why the church is always called the bride, though men are included within the church. This is why Mary, the mother of God, has been understood as the first among humanity to be fully redeemed, the second Eve to Christ's second Adam. And look at icons of Mary. She is always veiled. Always In church, we're supposed to look through men to Jesus. That's what it means for them to be the icon of Christ. Man is made in God's image. That's what that word means, just icon. That's what it says. And to reflect God's glory, he is the image and glory of God. Men are obviously not Jesus. We won't be tempted to have our thoughts brought down to the glories of humanity by looking at a man. That bit I don't think anyone could disagree with, can you? You know, most, no men are like Jesus perfectly. So when we see men being a bit like Jesus, we think of him above them. But women in this vision 
cover their glory because the church's glory has not yet been revealed. We're not ready for how glorious women are when we're in church, is the idea. Now, verse 11 and 12, there are reciprocal things going on. Maybe we breathe a sigh of relief here. There's a sense in which men and women are irreducibly interdependent. We are only God's image together. You cannot have the image of God without men and women together. But then he talks about something that is general rather than universal, just in case we were worried. He he goes to hair not to say, here are the rules. And, And here's the reason. If you were a woman in Israel, you could take a Nazarite vow that included, the end of it, shaving all your hair off. And if you were a man, it included growing your hair long. Paul even does one of these vows in Acts. So he's not saying, this is the rules. Don't have short hair if you're a woman. I hope, I hope you're relieved to hear that. And equally, don't have long hair if you're a man. That's not what he's saying. The thing he's saying is, there are certain things in every culture that mark men and women. In our culture, that's becoming harder and harder. People are, are railing against that and saying, no, we need to look exactly the same. There's only humans. But Paul's saying... In church, that's not how we deal with that. We celebrate the difference between men and women. And I feel that's really our biggest application from all of this. I will not be approaching the PCC asking to establish fixed hairstyles for men and women or to insist that women cover their heads when they come in church. That's not going to happen. I don't desire that for us. That is not appropriate for us at this stage in our church life. But the thing I pray and hope we will grow into is this idea that the difference between men and women can be honoured and celebrated in our church life rather than minimised, confused or scorned. In gradual ways, I pray that we can learn to find our place in a meaning-filled pattern which liberates us to be more fully who we are rather than dominating from above or usurping from below. There is so much more that I could have said, but I'm going to stop there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us in our confusion, our perplexity, to see a glimpse of this vision for reality that fills us with meaning, that enables us to be more fully who you've created us to be. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.